Future-proof gold from News Talk. Peter Singer is one of the most influential people in defence today. A military consultant and preeminent specialist on 21st century warfare, he's also the author of Ghost Fleet, a novel on the next world war. He joins me now. Welcome to the programme, Peter. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. You know, we don't talk to a lot of fiction writers on this programme. I, I would uh, hazard a guess that you are the probably the second or third fiction writer we've have on, had on the show because generally, you know, uh, we, we like to stick to the facts here. But the reason we're having you on is because this book uh, about what the next world war might look like is informed by your extensive experience in the, the technology of warfare today. I'm still having a, a challenge um, wrapping my head around being labeled a fiction writer. So, <laughs> you know, we joined earlier many years back talking about uh, a nonfiction book that I worked on, Wired for War, about robotics. And this book, Ghost Fleet, is in essence an extension of my work in the nonfiction world, wrestling, though, with a what if. And so essentially it's a smash up of a techno thriller looking at what would happen if the great powers of the 21st century went to war. But it's backed by three years of of research. So it's a novel, but with 400 endnotes to document how every single technology in it, no matter how science fiction seeming, is real. Uh, and I think that's what's allowed it to um, both you know, entertain people, but it's also being used to influence policy here in the States. Let me take you up on the very first thing, which is the title, A Novel of the Next World War. Have we not said goodbye to world wars? I think, you know, it's that attitude that's the challenge. Uh, you know, we had two world wars that shaped the 20th century, uh, costing tens of millions of lives. We had the risk of a third one, which, you know, a cold war that shaped everything from geopolitics to sports, unfortunately never turned hot. And there's this attitude in the 21st century that that's all in our historic rearview mirror. And yet when you look around the world, when you look at geopolitics, we're seeing this risk return, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we've seen Russian land grabs in the Ukraine take NATO to its highest levels of alert since the mid-1980s. In the Pacific, the U.S. and China are engaged in what can only be described as an arms race. Uh, China, for example, has built more warships, more warplanes than any other nation in 2012, 2013, 2014, planning to do so in 2015. You kind of get the picture here. And in turn, the U.S. has announced a new strategy to offset China with a new generation of high-tech weaponry. And so the point is, I think there is a, a parallel, a worrisome parallel to that period um, before World War One, where you had this mix of, on one hand, people thinking that a war between the great powers could never happen, sort of sleepwalking their way into a crisis, while simultaneous to that, the militaries are working on these new generation of weapons, and each of them is developing battle plans that they think will deliver to them a easy victory. And that's one of the things that the book plays with, is it takes the real-world battle plans and interacts them and explores, you know, what are the consequences of these new weapons, be they, you know, a hundred years ago, it was things like the submarine, the tank, uh, the aeroplane. Now it's things like robotics, cyber warfare. So it plays with what would a world war actually look like with the technology of today. Um, 
I'm trying to trying to imagine that eventuality where you know a, a situation does ramp up to the level of of a world war. But surely we have a Doctor Strange love scenario now, right? I mean, we should all be be able to sleep peacefully in our beds, knowing that if anybody starts a world war, that any other mid sized country would have enough firepower to destroy the world many times over. So it's that, that concept of mutually assured destruction that in that if someone goes to war, we're all screwed. Um, I first, it doesn't feel very comforting to say, you know, Dr. Strangelove is our guide to keeping <laughs> us safe. Um, but let, let's look at it in, in all seriousness. Um, we know, uh, for example, looking at uh, the past, that wars start through any number of ways. We had one world war that started through a very deliberate set of choices. We had another world war that was essentially a, a crisis that spun out of control, that no one, when it started, expected it would lead to that. Then look at the Cold War. The Cold War may have stayed cold, but now that we know the history of it, there were any number of occasions where uh, we almost uh, had a war break out. Sometimes there were very obvious ones, like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. And there's other ones now that we know from you know, reading uh, the unknown histories at the time that, you know, for example, in 1983, there was this incredibly close call uh, where, you know, the world didn't know that it was actually on the brink of war. And so the point is that nuclear weapons don't deliver the the fire break that we um, hope for. Um, Now, looking forward, again, you could imagine a war starting uh, between the great powers. You know, it might be through some accident, two warships scraping paint over some reef in the South China Sea uh, that it isn't even on a nautical chart and it spins out of control, or a Russian bomber and a NATO fighter plane, you know, um, knock into each other and a crisis spins out of control. Or it could be a very deliberate set of choices to reorder geopolitics, say, for example, in the 2020s, which is the period at which um, China's military is on pace to match the West, not just in terms of its quantity, but its quality with a new generation of uh, technologies out there. So the point is that we shouldn't tell ourselves that it's um, an impossibility. I certainly don't think a, a war is inevitable, but I do find it interesting that China's own regime newspaper just a, a couple months ago had an article that said, quote, a U.S.-China war is inevitable, end quote, if we didn't change our policies in the Pacific. So the point is that there are wow. – um, it's, it's on the possibility. Uh, it, it is a, something we have to wrestle with, explore, particularly if we want to make sure that it doesn't happen. Okay, so what sort of technology will the next world war be using? I mean, there was a big worry in the 60s and 70s that the, that space would be militarized. I'm not entirely convinced that there aren't things in space that have military capabilities. But is space one of those places where the next generation of generals are, are hoping to set up positions? So our book is a model where it doesn't follow a single character along a single journey, but multiple characters in multiple locations, a lot like a Tom Clancy Red Storm Rising Mm. or Game of Thrones or uh, Winds of War. And the reason is not just because those are the fictions that we loved reading, but also it explores how a future war would be one that takes 
place in multiple locations. So it'd be different than the wars of today that have been, you know, essentially on the ground. It would be more like a, a World War II, where you'd see battles uh, on the ground, but also in the air at sea. Where, you know, let's be clear, we haven't seen great powers fight naval battles, you know, essentially for 70 years. But just as you hit, it would also see battles in locations where we've never fought before, and that would be in space and also cyberspace. And you know, for example, on the space side, we've seen. Um, China attest anti-satellite weaponry, uh, such as missiles. Um, we've seen Russia... Missiles that go into space. Yes, they've done several tests of those. They've actually created a great degree of um, space debris that's um, uh, dangerous to civilian operations up there right now. We've seen Russia. There's some rumors of a killer satellite program. And, and in turn, the United States recently announced that it was spending over $5 billion U.S. dollars on equipping itself for space warfare. Uh, and this is what, you know, it would be um, scary and simultaneously fascinating because essentially we'd see the first battles in this domain, which is, you know, essentially disappointing because uh, it, it's not something anyone would want to happen. But whoever, uh, he who controls the heavens would control what happens below on Earth because space has become uh, almost like the nervous system of both civilian communications and commerce, but also military operations. Cyberspace would be the other realm where we would see conflict, and it would be very different than the cyber threats that we've, you know, are experiencing right now of stealing secrets back and forth, whether it's business secrets or more traditional espionage, uh, like, for example, you know, the activities of China and breaking into um, U.S. records. They recently stole the records of 21 million Americans, or in turn, you know, NSA-style mass uh, monitoring, as revealed mm. by Snowden. Cyber war would be different. It'd be about breaking things. It would not be stealing secrets. It'd be, uh, for example, shutting down access to GPS, getting inside military command and control networks, or even sabotaging equipment um, along the lines of the Stuxnet weapon uh, that the U.S. deployed against Iran, where um, it broke certain parts of their nuclear research facilities. That same kind of weapon could be used against everything from traffic lights to Navy um, warship engines. And, and one of the you know, weird experiences of this book, you, you know, hit, a, again, the, the fiction, nonfiction cross, is I um, had this weird experience of briefing some of the real-world lessons from the novel to a U.S. intelligence agency where I explained how the novel would reveal how their headquarters building could be hacked. Wow. Yeah, I, I very much envisioned that, and I can't remember the movie, but the idea that we could hack into uh, large infrastructure buildings to turn off major reactors or something like that, that obviously is a real threat now that we live in this connected world. Peter, what about lasers? Because that's something that we always see in science fiction, but you know, while we use lasers in industry all the time, they've never really made it onto the battlefield. Is that something that's likely to happen, the sort of Star Trek phasers, that sort of thing? A future war will involve all sorts of technologies that had only recently seemed science fiction. And again, the, the same thing happened, uh, for example, back in World War I, where you had you know, the science fiction of the submarine, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, then become a critical technology in war. And so there are a suite of these technologies, um, robotics, autonomous drones, and lasers, directed energy. We've, and again, this, you know, the, the rule for us in the novel 
was no technology that was fictional. Everything had to be drawn from the real world. So on the real world side with lasers, we've um, seen everything from the U.S. Navy has deployed a laser weapon, a direct energy weapon, um, onto a warship called the USS Ponce. Uh, it's actually out in the Persian Gulf right now. To China actually just revealed that it was in turn developing lasers. Each of them are designed right now. They're of the you know they're not Death Star level in their capability. They're more <laughs> about the level of uh, taking out a missile or a small drone. The interesting thing with lasers and why they're such a game changer is that um, essentially. As long as you have the power, it's like having an unlimited set of bullets. And so it may be a, a critical um, way of responding to a swarming attack of missiles. So one of the challenges of, a, say, a U.S.-China war is that your defensive missiles, they could have like a 90% accuracy, but all the guy has to do is shoot enough at you that um, you know one's ultimately going to get through. With lasers, you can just keep firing again and again and again. And so we want to see these used in naval war. We've also seen ones tested for the land side in, for example, shooting down incoming rockets or mortars, like what we've seen in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and um, in space. It's a weapon that has you know, obviously been imagined uh, for space warfare. It is particularly uh, attuned for that. And so you know, the, the future of war, we'll see a lot of this. One of the more amusing things of it is that lasers don't make noise. And so in the U.S. military testing of it, they've actually had to feed noise into it to let people know that the weapon is firing. And they pulled the soundtrack from certain science fiction You're movies. You're kidding. Yes. Now, it doesn't actually sound like pew, pew, but, you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. And again, this is the strange, weird, wonderful, scary world that we're entering. What um, are the the more unusual or the more scary weapons that are in use right now, Peter, that, that you drew inspiration for for the book? Uh, is there anything out there that you think, oh, my God, I can't believe they're using that or I can't – if I saw that coming towards me, I, I'd run? So it's a book about the future of technology and war and the risk of a World War III, and it features – all sorts of real technology uh, that's pretty spooky, you know, everything from uh, robotic spiders to um, laser weaponry. But maybe the scariest technology in it and the scariest scene is something that was uh, technology that was designed to help people originally. So there is a program at DARPA, the U.S. Military uh, Research Institution, that was designed to help um, people who've been uh, paralyzed to operate in the world via a brain-machine Interface. So it allows someone who, for example, can't move their arms or legs to, via thought, by linking up to a computer, move a robotic arm or leg, or even to move the cursor on a computer, which allows them, via thought, to you know, navigate the web or send emails. There's another program there that works in the opposite direction, where instead of sending thoughts out, it um, interfaces in. It was designed to help soldiers who are trying to recover from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, deal with the, you know, the horrible um, emotions and memories by manipulating those emotions and memories. So these programs started out for good. The book explores how you know, every single technology, whether it's a stone, whether it's a drone, to the Internet will be used for both good and bad. And so this brain-machine interface technology appears in a scene of future torture where you are able to manipulate someone's experience of pain to their very memories 
solely by hooking them up to a computer. It feels very science fiction, and yet this is the future that looms. Wow. Um, you know, we heard from Elon Musk uh, himself and Stephen Hawking uh, and a number of eminent people in the technology field. They all signed this letter saying, look, let's let's woe back on autonomous weapons. And of course, it's an easy headline to write sort of flippantly, isn't it? You know, killer robots, ha ha ha. But this is a very real concern for ethicists and for uh, those in the military deciding at what point do you hand over the rifle to a robot that will have 100% accuracy, that will not tire, that will always hit its targets, that will not defect and is infinitely more reliable in the situation of war. It's a huge issue, and, and one, when I mean huge, it'll be huge in terms of human history, not just the history of war. The reality, though, is that that effort to ban killer robots, which in turn, again, it's, it's affected by the science fiction narrative of killer robots, has to overcome the fact that the robotics are not being worked on because people think they're cool. They're being worked on because of their use cases in the military. And so in the work for Ghost Fleet, it may be a novel, but it documents how there are at least 21 different programs right now working on the use of uh, military robotics and autonomy in war. And they range from uh, everything from autonomous drones to artificial intelligence battle management systems to a automated, uh, essentially it's a, it's a, a robotic motorboat that's able to go out and hunt submarines on its own. And these use cases, it documents the real-world programs behind them. And the point is that the military is working on these because it sees them as being useful in a future war. And so if you're going to ban them, you have to not just overcome the, um, you know, sort of general push for science. Uh, and, you know, again, artificial intelligence is not being pushed solely by the military. It's being pushed by everything from banking to power companies to video game companies. But it also has to overcome the fact that militaries around the world, not just the U.S. military, but in turn, say the Chinese military is an illustration, all want these technologies to give them a leg up against the other side. What the, the book lays out is that this wider, you know, it's not merely the Terminator scenario of a walking robot out there. It's all of these different uses, everything from robotic firefighters to AI battle management systems on warships, whatever, is that the likely um, outcome is that we'll see them used in different settings to different levels of autonomy. So uh, it's going to be more difficult, both in terms of the battlefield use, but the law and the ethics side, to say, you know, deploy a walking robot into um, a busy city. Um, on the other hand, we may see settings where we're more comfortable, um, both in the military sense, but the ethical sense, um, unleashing them. And an example would be uh, submarine warfare, where already, you know, it's not humans listening to sonars anymore. It's basically computer algorithms trying to identify this is what a, a kilo-class sub sounds like, and so I'll fire my torpedo, and it's designed only to go after this sub. So, so um, you kind of piqued my attention when you said, you know, battle management systems that are driven by artificial intelligence and I'm imagining kind of War Games the movie or, or it wasn't that, it was a long time that, ago that Deep Blue beat Kasparov uh, you know if you give a limited number of factors into an algorithm it may come back with you with a solution that will give you the highest possible chance of success but it also may sound crazy to a human general or a human officer who is uh, given the task of approving the mission are we close to that sort of scenario where computers are are looking at uh, battle systems and deciding what the best mode of, of approach is? 
So the centerpiece of the book is a warship called the USS Zumwalt that's actually under construction right now in the United States in Maine. It's basically a 21st century stealthy battleship. There's no other way to describe it. And what I mean that is that it's the size of a battleship in the past, but, uh, for example, it's powered by over 5 million lines of um, Linux code. Um, it's not made of traditional metals, but it's made of uh, various materials that give it a stealthy appearance. But one of the interesting things about it is that it may be the, the size and the role of a battleship, but a ship its size in, um, a couple generations ago would have needed a crew of about 1,200. It's going to have a crew of 130. And the reason is that it's so robotic. It's um, And the robotic is everything from the firefighters to how the engine room operates to the battle management systems. It also changes the role of the humans. So, for example, the, in a battle, the captain of the ship won't be on the bridge. He'll be in this, essentially, it's a two-story room in the innards of the ship where um, you have a series of people, uh, you know, kind of imagine it almost looking like a TV studio where um, on the ground level, they're all working behind computer screens. And then the captain will be on the upper level looking down at them. And so, you know, essentially the, the computer systems with human roles in it will be giving him or her a series of options and recommendations, choices to choose from. This is a, the way it'll play out in naval war. It's the same thing on the land war side. The U.S. Marine Corps has a, a program that was called the Command Post of the Future, and essentially a, a small team, less than 10, was able to do the job that used to require over 200 officers because the computers were doing things like writing the fire orders for them, giving them a set of recommendations. The human's still in control, but their information and how they prioritize that information is coming from the machine. Now, this all sounds, you know, sci-fi, but guess what? It's just like what happens in everything from stock market trading right now to when you and I want to drive to visit uh, someone that we've never met before. The GPS tells us the route to go. We still have the ability to decide differently, but there's always that you know um, voice in the back of your head saying, this may not feel right, but gosh, the computer knows what it's talking about. Mm. This doesn't sound as bad as it, at first I, I thought, Peter, because if it's robots at war, then does so, it matter? So World War III is okay. Yeah, well, no, but if, if it's just machines attacking machines, then surely the number of lives that are at risk, yeah, say, for example, in that submarine are much lower, that we're all safe at home, and it's playing remote-controlled robots. I mean, isn't that a good thing? Unfortunately, that, that's not the way it would play out either. So, you know, it's not going to be a, a Star Trek-style uh, future where everything's clean and the technology works as planned. Um, it's a more of, a, I would argue, a, a cyberpunk-style future where, yes, you have high technology. Um, you may have autonomous drones uh, or stealth battleships or cyber war. But you'll still have both death destruction. For example, in the book, we you know explore how certain um, like roadside bombs and IEDs they've proven that they've worked in today's wars. That means they're not going to go away in tomorrow's wars. You also have the fact that technology can go after itself. So you may have these highly advanced systems, but the technology may take us back to battles more akin to World War One or World War Two. Uh, the example here I would give is that. There's been a complaint among soldiers in places like, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or the like that there's there's too much information that they're gathering all, you know, the, the, the drones, the sensors, they're flooding them with data. But when you see great powers go to war against each other, 
they're going to cut that flow. And so you'll see, you know, the first challenge for warships will actually be to find each other again. That means it's, you know, more like those early battles. You know, you've grown used to having GPS. What happens when I take GPS away from you? And I mean, you, it's everything from us on the home front to the soldier out in the field. Hmm. And a good illustration of where we may be headed is not just, you know, the scenarios we play out in the book, but the way that the U.S. Navy has changed its training for its new officers at the Naval Academy. Academy. This year, it did two important things. It added um, a new training school for cyber warfare. It's a training pipeline to create the next generation of Navy officers who will be cyber warriors. But it also required that every single midshipman learn celestial navigation. Huh. So they're ready to navigate for when the technology, you know, craps out, so to speak. Yeah, and, and you know, think- that's a scenario that we've sort of seen in, in many post-apocalyptic movies that deal with that sort of scenario, that, that actually all the technology that we rely on every day, it disappears and people need to learn how to, you know, hunt for food and navigate by the stars. Yeah, and then it's, it's that mix of high technology, low technology, but also generations crossing. So you'll have people who know what it's like, you know, before there was an internet, but also people that, you know, believe it's unnatural to be in a world without it. And and that's what's the player, the conflict actor, the nation that figures out how to bring this mix together best is likely the one that's going to win. P.W. Singer, thank you very much for joining us. The webpage is ghostfleetbook.com. There's lots of extras for, uh, for people who want to, to really delve in there. Peter, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me on. 